Okay. Uh, so this morning really is a special morning for us guys. Um, personally, um, I think if I look back on my life, I think all of us would say the same thing that I would say is that we've had, there's people that have made a significant impact on your life. Um, <clears throat> and I'm stoked for you guys to be able to, uh, to be able to meet and hear from Chris and Merrill this morning. But I would honestly say that like, after my mom and my dad, my biological parents that are sitting in the back right there, uh, Chris and Merrill have had a profound impact on my life. Not just me, uh, and Ebony as well. And specifically when it comes to uh, following Jesus, when it comes to seeing Jesus clearly, when it comes to surrendering your life to his lordship, and not just receiving him as your savior, but actually like following him with your life. I want to read out of Ephesians 4. This is the, uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the, Ephesians church, the Ephesian church. He says this, And he, the he is Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So he gives five gifts there. He's describing five spiritual gifts that, that Jesus gives to people <clears throat> for the benefit of the, of the church. Listen to this. He says, To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's the church until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of, jo- of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ." Paul clearly says that, that Jesus gives gifts to people to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. That's what Chris and Merrill are here to do today. And when it said, like the, 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 the first verse I read to you, and he gave, it really is this picture of Jesus giving gifts to his church. So I say that to say, like, Chris and Merrill really are a gift to the church from Jesus. They're not better than anybody in the room. They, they're probably farther along the, 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 the road of following Jesus than many of us. But they're a, a wonderful living picture of what it looks like to surrender your life to Jesus. All of you have gifts, like you really do. Some of them maybe not even unlocked yet, but you have spiritual gifts. And those gifts, aren't, they don't exist for you to like build an identity around or to like get a platform so that you can be celebrated and your gifts can be celebrated. No, your gifts exist for the same reason that their gifts exist so that other people, especially the body of Christ, would experience God's love through those gifts. You're no different. I'm no different. But the cool thing is that Jesus gives gifts to his church to build up and to equip. Um, I was joking with Chris earlier, the five gifts listed here. Usually, church leaders will go, which one of those five am I? I I laugh because I think think Chris is all five. It's kind of crazy. He has a unique grace on his life. But it's not even so much about him. It's about Jesus really loving his church and caring for his church through Chris. So uh, one of the things that we're trying to develop in this foundational season of a church is a culture of honor. Uh, we want to be people of grace, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. Uh, so what I want to ask you to do is I want to ask you to warmly welcome him before he says a word. You've never heard, even heard him really talk, okay, because we're people of grace, and we give people what they don't deserve, and we want to create a culture of honor. So would you make a really loud noise for Chris as he comes up? Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks to those of you who are here reluctantly this morning. 
probably a 20, 30% of you who's just like, oh, do I have to? It's a beautiful day out there, sitting inside a room, here's some guy talk, and then it's a guy with a funny accent, and then it's an old guy with a funny accent hearing him talk. You're amazing. I could think of many other things that you could be doing right now rather than sit in a room with people you don't know, having to smile and be nice and kind and And especially if you and your husband had a fight this morning, isn't that the worst to come to church and you're like sitting as far on the edge of your seat away from your spouse as you can and everyone's like, hi, how are you doing? Great. I'm such a liar. I'm such a hypocrite. Great. I'm really grateful you are here. That's Meryl Diane, my wonderful wife. I led her to Jesus when she was 15. I didn't know that I did. I went to speak at a youth event and asked those of of you, the the youngsters who wanted to... uh, come into a walk with Jesus, and uh, she was one of the crew that came. I started a Bible study in town because our little suburb in South Africa really didn't have much going on. We were clueless. We were gloriously, wonderfully clueless. We knew we loved Jesus, and we just wanted to have an adventure together. Three years later, I married her, 38 years in November. And yeah, absolutely. See, I'm here to give you hope. Because probably three times we could have gotten divorced. I just said I'll never have the divorce conversation, uh, but Meryl probably would have killed me. Anyway, so uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful story full of hope. We are about as different as you can imagine. Um, our marriage exists for reasons of incompatibility. So when people get divorced because they're incompatible, I'm thinking that's the only thing we have in common. We are completely <laughs> incompatible. And we have three wonderful kids Our daughters are married. See, I want you to know I'm not a walking mouth. I'm a person. I have good days and bad days, and I love Jesus passionately sometimes, and others I'm like, ah, I don't know if he's worth it. It's okay. He can cope with my vulnerabilities and my humanity and my maleness and my whatever the case may be. So thank you for being here. Grab your Bibles, and if you don't have one, it doesn't matter. The Scripture will appear on the screen over my shoulder. And those of you who might be less acquainted with the Scriptures, we're going to go to the story of the early church, the photo album of the baby church. Now, back in the day, we had real albums. Uh, These days, we have everything on our iPhone in a place called the iCloud, and may that never collapse, because who knows what will happen to our rich, fond memories. And this is... The, the, the baby pictures of the early church. You want to know what the early church was like? I'm going to read a portion to you. And then we're just going to conversate a little bit around what that looked like. And is there any relevance to us today? You here in Temecula, restored church. There we go. So it's about 75% into your Bible. If you go to the middle, turn right. And if you get to the maps, recalculate. You've gone too far. Uh, 36 of Acts in the second chapter. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, there is a certitude that we can have as Christians, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter is speaking to Jerusalem, um, a town at that stage probably the size of Fullerton. Uh, That was the city and as you can imagine, everyone knew everyone. Everyone knew what happened in town. I don't know, how big is Temecula? Okay, so about the size of Temecula. And um, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's a beautiful verse. It's when I saw Meryl, I was cut to the heart. 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. It's a very big religious word. What does that mean? I hope we can get there. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the purpose is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, that's the phrase we preachers like, and with many other words. I love that verse. I should use that verse all the time. Uh, with many other words, he, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. This is a crazy picture I've just pulled out of the photo album, isn't it? They were all together, and had everything in common. It doesn't kind of sound like Southern California. It doesn't sound like it, does it? It sounds like that was black and white pictures, now we have 4K. I mean, that was like then when TVs were big, round, and bulbous, and now we thin and flat and wide. Ah, it's yesteryear. We don't believe this stuff. Heck no. Um, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Father, help us now. Open, your, open our eyes and our hearts to the scriptures. May we hear you clearly. May we be humble enough to be teachable, honest enough to be real, and courageous enough to be changed. But only you can do that. And that's our request of you in Jesus' name. Amen. About 10 days ago, two weeks ago, two things happened that uh, got us all to sit up. The first was uh, Kate Spade's suicide by hanging in her apartment in New York City. I didn't really know her. I knew vaguely of her, forgive me ladies, of her, of her fashion range and her, her products, her, her purses and the rest. Um, but just a few days later, Anthony Bourdain, a man who was curious to me, I was totally intrigued by him. He was obviously a genius, suffered with melancholia, had been a hero and addict a few years before, uh, hung himself in a quiet French village in the middle of a TV show. They found no uh, drugs in his toxology report. I was stunned by it, to be honest. I thought here was two people who by all appearances had most things going for them. Yes, Kate Spade and her husband's marriage was falling apart, but she had a little girl. Why couldn't she have held in there? And I'm saying all of these things with great compassion and empathy. Anthony Bourdain, uh, he was living with a, with a French actress, uh, a man of incredible honesty, phenomenal knowledge of things culinary as well as just society in general. And uh, so I started to read around them. I went from popular culture like TMZ all the way through to the New York Times. Any article I could, I read around the write-ups of who they were, why they possibly committed suicide, and what the family said about them. And what was interesting to me was the number one cry, the plea of the hearts of their loved ones were, why didn't they tell us? Why didn't they come to community? Why didn't they tell us? 
Why didn't they come to us? And the uh, statistics of suicide in America are horrific. I mean, I've got them in my notes. Forgive me if I just pull them from memory. Every year, almost 45,000 people in America commit suicide. It works out at about 121, I think, people per day. The average white male, average aged white male, has the highest incidence of suicide. The average woman will possibly... who. The average woman who may attempt suicide may attempt a number of times before she actually does. The average white middle-aged man will do it because he wants to do it. And I don't know about you, but that bruised me. And I've been in ministry forever, 42 years I've walked with Jesus. I love him deeply, love the church with all of my heart. I have every reason in the book to tap out from church to tap out in my faith and say, I'm done, I will be 60 next month, I am just going to chill out for the rest of my days. But this, this Jesus that is so captivating for me, this Jesus who gripped my soul as a 19-year-old college student just before I graduated, went off to the army for a few years and then was a school teacher, that Jesus still captivates me. I still love him more. I'm amazed. Honestly, I'm absolutely amazed he loves me. I was a worship leader in the 70s, and we sang a song, I don't know why Jesus loves me. I don't know why he cares, and I don't know even today. I don't know why he just didn't take Project Planet Earth and wipe us off one shot in the flood and start again. I don't know. I honestly do not know. And the fact that he still loves me, The fact that he still cares for me, the fact that he still forgives my sins is nothing but amazing and and, and awesome. And uh, and I'm a dad now. I've got three kids. I love me. I've got four grandkids. I love all of that. And if that love, which is so limited but endless, I find love all the time for my kiddos and my grandkiddos, how much more sublime is the love that Jesus has for me? And then I love the church. It's a compelling community. So I see these two deaths that shocked me and shook me. I read the statistics from the American Suicide Association, and they shocked me. And the answer says the friends of them, why didn't they speak? Why didn't they find community? Now, this passage, this story is really quite amazing. This is an early church in a Jewish culture. This is Peter gets up in front of thousands of people. He was the stutterer. He was the crazy, nutty one. And I read it in my devotions yesterday. A little servant girl comes to him the night that Jesus was betrayed, and he cusses at her. I mean, he F-bombs her. You know what I mean? He's walked with Jesus for three years, like by his side. He said, I'm with you. I'm going to hang with you. I'm going to stay with you. I'm, I'm here till the end. If they kill you, they kill me. And a little bitty girl comes to him around the fire, and he F-bombs his way. I don't effing know this guy. I said, oh, God, thank you. If you can love a guy like that, you can love me. Because <laughs> I don't always say it. I think it, though. So if we unpackage this story, what do we find? What is so profound about this story? Well, I want to just walk us through it. A little at a time, we'll pick up a photo album, we'll pick a picture from the album, and we'll talk a little around it. Let all the house of Israel, that's the opening, that's who, that's who he is telling. And you know why I love that, dear church plant restored with the fancy mugs? You know why I love it? It's because he's continuing the story. 
He's not saying that this is brand new, write everything else out, get rid of everything else. This is part of a great global narrative. Think for a moment. I was driving, I don't know if it's a canyon or a road or whatever, on the way here this morning. And I just thought, I wonder what it was like to be the first preacher in the, is this a valley? Can I call it a valley? Um, I wonder what it was like. I wonder what they dreamt when they arrived. You're probably on horseback and carriage, never imagining the amount, the volumes, the hundreds of thousands of people who are. Let all Israel, he says, this is part of that ongoing narrative. You are part, my dear restored friends, of an ongoing narrative of what God wants to do, the love that he wants to show men and women here in the valley. You, not Tom and Ebony, you. Jonathan Trigg sends his glove, by the way. I saw him last night. Let all of Israel know, therefore, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Eugene Peterson says, Messiah and Master. C.S. Lewis, we all know him, I'm sure, know of him. He said this, the Christian way is different. It's harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time or so much of your money or so much of your work. I want you. Please, don't sprinkle your life with a little bit of Jesus to satisfy some curious conscience moment. It's the most glorious thing to fully surrender your all. Meryl and I have bought this beautiful house in Costa Mesa. But, but when we moved here 21 years ago in Diamond Bar, we had, Meryl had a big sweeping bedroom, uh, a closet, and, and I had a nice big one. And then we bought a house in Brea and similarly beautiful space. And now we're sharing a closet space. One. Closet space for two people <laughs> that can get quite full. And every now and again, Meryl cheats. And I look in my, 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 my rack of jackets and I think, I do not have a red leather jacket. I, I do not have one. I, I'm sure Meryl ever bought me one because I don't think I'd wear it. It probably won't fit by the pure power of deduction. It's hers. And then... Uh, <laughs> Meryl, stay in the text, please. Stay in the scriptures. And, and here, here, here it is. When you get married, it's all, isn't it? It's all. You, you can't add a little bit of sex to your life and call it marriage. You, you, you guys who, who used to kind of staying in, in a dorm or, or, a, or kind of a frat house or something, oh, I'm going to get a chick who's going to cook for me. You don't splash your life with a little bit of something. We, we stand at the altar and we look at each other. I will to I will say, I am dying for you. And, and she says, I am dying for you. And the Bible says the two become one but remain Two. It's this incredible miracle. And so what, what C.S. Lewis is saying here, Jesus doesn't come to be Lord and Master, meaning it's simply a little bit of salt and pepper on an already confusing stew. No, no, he wants you all. You, you come into this great adventure of faith and you die, a glorious death. Or Paul says, I die daily. And it's this overwhelming privilege and I can say that after walking with Jesus for 42 years, 38 of them in pastoral ministry, dying daily. Folks, I did not want to come to America. This is the destination of choice of millions of people. Meryl and I encountered the living God in Hong Kong in a unique way. And God said, you will spend the rest of your days abroad. And we assumed it was we'd plant a church in Hong Kong, a most intoxicating city of six million then, into which we could minister to a billion Chinese, a billion Indians. And six years later, I'm at John Wayne Airport 
waiting to be picked up there, and the Spirit of God says to me, welcome home, and I am devastated. I don't want to live in America for no reason other than the gospel's being here. There are a billion Chinese, a billion Indians, and you want me to come to where people already have the gospel? You've got to be kidding me. See, Jesus doesn't say, what is your dream? Let me help you achieve your dream. Jesus says, come and die. Come and die. You know why I love Meryl? Because we've learned to die. When I'm selfish, stubborn, preoccupied, my life is best, do it my way or the highway, we have a dreadful marriage. When I lay down my life and say, baby, I love you, I care for you, how can I serve you? Do you know what? We've got a pretty cool marriage. And gentlemen, can I be really crude and honest? You don't lose your malehood, your balls. You don't, you don't lose that when you lay your life down for your wife. You gain them because the love and respect and partnership and honor that comes with that far outweighs, I'm a man, I'm going to do it my way. You better bow down to that agenda. I'm getting distracted, for which I apologize. Okay, let's carry on. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. That is a beautiful word. You know that? We kind of think of it as a religious word that somehow has no bearing. We don't talk about that in, uh, in you know, it's a, you don't say to your kid, repent. You know, they're like, what? No, repent. It's like, mm, then, I, you know, iPhone, repent means. Let me tell you what repent means. When we first got here 21 years ago, I'm of Germanic roots, so that means when, when uh, time actually is like something on a watch that happens, it's like you're there on time. That's what my father drilled into me. So we get you, and we are completely overwhelmed. It's pre-map quest. Uh, we got these kind of flip phones, and, but, but there's no... So Thomas Guide. Remember Thomas Guide, all you peeps? Okay. So I'm running my eldest daughter. She's got to play a volleyball game in Ontario somewhere. I have no idea where it is. So, I mean, as I was then, you don't ask for directions. You'll just find it. So I get on the 57, get on the 60, and, and I'm just driving. And, and, and I'm just driving. And I think, uh, Nas, I think we've missed the turn. And she's like, oh, Dad, it'll be fine. I'm saying, oh, thank you, goodness, you with me. And eventually, what do I do? I call Steve Barr, because you know that when you're in trouble, call Steve Barr. He always solves everything. Hi, Steve, Chris here. I need help. What do you need? I've got to take Nas to this school. He says, where are you? I tell him where I am, near the Ontario airport, and there's this pregnant silence. You know the, oh, crap, I'm really in a bad place kind of silence? Uh, <laughs> you're not where you should be. Okay. Well, you need to turn around. There's a 15 interchange, and you've got to drive back like 20 minutes. Now, I am boiling on the inside because I hate being late, especially to my kids' game. That's what repentance. I need help. I'm going in the wrong direction. I cannot get there by myself. That's what repent means. It's not a scary big religious world, repent, the end is nigh with a beard and, and, and a, a you know, kind of sandwich board. It's saying, I need help. I can, can someone just tell me where to go? My marriage is screwed up. I need help. That's what repent is. Repent. 
And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I love that. Oh, I love that. Can I just tell you a quick little story? Because stories, to me, make spiritual truths weighty. My son was about 13 or 14. I always told my kids, listen, God will tell me if you're up to stuff. And each kid didn't believe me. And each kid had a moment where they crossed the line. God spoke to Meryl and I, and we confronted them. So I'm sitting watching ESPN Saturday afternoon. I don't remember what I was watching. The Spirit of God says to me, it's your son. God always speaks to me in phrases. He doesn't have to be long-winded. I know instantly he's been up to something he shouldn't be. I go up the stairs. He's coming down the stairs. I look at him and I say, my boy, we have to talk, don't we? Now, you know what's fun is that they never know what God's told me. So invariably, they confess stuff I'd never even thought, oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I just like look very pious, and yeah, I knew all about that. And I'm just like, oh, didn't know, didn't know, didn't know, but never mind. We go to his room, we sit down there, and I said, boy, well, tell me. So he tells me. I said, all right, Dad needs a few moments. I walk out the room. I try and process, God, what do I need to do? Please teach me, coach me. I walk back into the room. He's lying on his bed by now. He's a nice, tall soccer player, uh, surfer. And he's lying there, and uh, I put my hand on his chest like this. You see, what are we talking about? God's forgiveness. What it needs to be anchored into this community, the joy, wonder, and power of this truth. And I put my hand on his chest. I said, boy, do you know God will never love you any more or any less than he loves you right now? And his head goes from side to side. And I pushed a little harder on his chest because we're a very physical family. And I said, my boy, God will never love you any more, any less than he loves you right now. And the head goes from side to side. I push once more and again. And eventually one tear rolls down his cheek and he opens his eye and he says to me, Dad, really? I said, my boy, God will never love you any more, any less than he loves you right now. But I said, that's not the good news. He said, what's the good news then, Dad? I said, God says this. He remembers our sins no more. I said, God will never speak to you about this, and neither will I. See, he understood that day what forgiveness means. It isn't God has a bank called your bad deeds, and I will pull them out to remind you when I'm having a bad day or you are. God never says, you always, you never. God never says that because the moment a sin is confessed, it is forgiven, and God will never conversate with you around that anymore. That's the kind of community that we need to create in this world that is so crazy and so confused and so disorientated. Can there be a light of forgiveness that shines bright, that men and women know God forgives me and he washes me truly clean of all my sin and iniquity and it's a conversation he will never go back to and neither will I, his father, and I haven't to that day, of that day again. See, this is the baby picture of the church. It was they understood it right then and there. This great Hebrew crowd understood the power of sin forgiven and sin forgotten. And so it needs to be anchored into this community. If our understanding of that is not scandalous, it's not complete. Okay, let's carry on reading. You're still with me? And then it says this, and this is where I want to spend just a little more time. It says, for the promise is for you, your children, and those who are far off. Why do we plant churches? It's passionate. Meryl and I are planting a church in Costa Mesa right now. Tonight, we dash back. We've got our little crew meeting over dinner. Aren't there enough churches around? Surely there are enough churches around. Well, Paul tells us why, Peter does, in those few verses. Number one, he says it's for you. 
I would imagine in a room like this, many of you were quite stagnant, disengaged, and, and, and a lacking contribution if you went to a church in the church that you were in, would be my guess. And so Peter says, this is for you. This is to activate you, catalyze you, get you to be participant players in a great adventure of faith where the life of God bleeds its way into a city. But it's not a one-generational move as the 1980s taught us about the homogenous church. If you don't know what I'm talking about, hallelujah. But it's also for our children. The gift of community for our children. Let me tell you a little personal story. I hope they help. I was 24. Meryl was 21 when we planted our first church. We were all in our 20s. We were all, that's fine. This is family. We love the sound of babies. If they're someone else's, we love the sound of babies. Um, and um, so, so we plant this little church. There are no kids in the church. It's, it's kind of the, the, the opposite to restored to Mecula. We, we had no kids. And then, of course, it started. Meryl had one. Then Meryl had two. And other girls had. And we had this great little community. But you see, our kids fell in love with the idea of community. Our girls, then Tiana was born here, just fell in love. I mean, they would literally say, Dad, is it church tonight? I said, no, baby, it's Wednesday night. Oh, no! <laughs> See, the dining room table conversation is not, oh, should we go Sunday? Oh, it's been tired. I mean, we're tired. It's been a long week, you know. Oh, I think I just need to stay at home. I just need to sleep in, and I'll make breakfast for everyone. Well, your kids aren't going to be compelled by a community you're not compelled by. It's not going to be a priority for them if the conversation in the car going home or next Sunday morning is, oh, I don't know. They pick up what we value. And for us, we valued community. So our kids went to everything with us. Can I be a little naughty and push your buttons a bit? Please don't make the kids the center of your universe. The kids adapted to our lifestyle. We had a leaders meeting. They came in their pajamas, with a blanket, with snacks, with coloring books. They sat at our feet till we were done and they'd get to bed at 9 o'clock. And you know what? They loved the church. It wasn't their convenience and their sleeping patterns were not the center of the universe. People said, oh, your kids, won't, your kids will not dig the church. I never saw my daughter swim in a swim meet because I was traveling. The first time she ran an athletic meet, I was in Delhi, India with Meryl. We were preaching in India. Brief cell phones, we were on the hotel phone, a really not a nice room, the YMCA in Delhi. And we get her on the phone. Hey, babe, how did the race go? And she's like, oh, I can't believe it. I won. And dad, your brother was there. And he hugged me and told me how amazing I ran. Isn't that amazing? And we're like, fabulous. Whatever. We put the phone down and we fall on this dirty, dusty, yucky hotel floor and we wept. That little girl did not grow up hating the church. Her and her husband are planning a church in Subiaco, Perth, Australia right now because the church is valued. It is the precious bride of Jesus. It's what he gave his life for. It's what is the greatest priority of eternity. More important than business, and I love business, politics, which I'm uh, intrigued by. The church is the manifold wisdom of God. And our children deserve to be compelled by it. Our children deserve to be so intoxicated by it. Because we are. And folks, of course things go bad. It's real people like you and me. We hurt each other. We say unkind things. But listen, if Meryl Diane and I can have 38 years of marriage, 
No one loves Meryl like I do. No one loves me like Meryl does. And we've hurt each other. Me probably hurt Meryl more than the opposite way around. Are we still married? It's that thing called forgiveness. So Tom says something that offends you. You don't huff and puff and blow your house down. And you don't find another church. I mean, we say we're family until we have an argument. Really? I thought being a family means you argue. Don't, don't you argue? Or is this Meryl and I who argue? You do too, so you don't change your wife because you had an argument. You come, you let the blood do the blood's work to cleanse us, soften us, forgive us, hug, kiss. Well, so we do that in community. And let our kids see the wonder of that. And those who are far off is the third category they're using. Are you still with me? Okay, you challenged a little bit? I hope so. Otherwise, I haven't done my job. But I hope you feel greatly loved and appreciated. Those who are far off, it says it over there. Well, who are they? There are three groupings of people that gives meaning to this church's existence. Those who are far off. Number one, it's those who are unchurched. You know what's been interesting is that there are many Americans just like you, but whose parents left the church. And we are now finding them come through high school, college, and they do not know the Bible. They do not know church. They do not know even the Jesus stories. They're unchurched. They're amongst us. They like us. They speak like us. But it's a whole generation of people who know as much about Jesus as a Chinese person does in China. That's why we exist. We don't exist so that our generation, I know I'm older than all of you, but our generation can have a happy, cool space with a cool, sexy pastor, well, sexy wife of a, of a pastor. Have you noticed how tight his shirt is? Hey, isn't, that, isn't that like, I just want to make this announcement, um, you know, just, uh, what is it with these young hipster pastors and all with these tight shirts? And I even did my push-ups this morning. It doesn't help in my T-shirt. I mean, my T-shirt's just kind of floating around there somewhere. Okay, back to sobriety. So the unchurched. Here's the unchurched. That's why you exist. Look at the seats around you. They are to be filled by young men and women who have never heard the precious name of Jesus. Never tasted the wonder and the miracle of Christian community. And neither had they. And they are the ones who are far off. Secondly, are the ex-churched. Two sociologists have written a book called Church Refugees. And their conclusions are absolutely scary. They are saying a third of all American Christians are tapping out from the church. So we're done. And they identify themselves as done. We have no religious affiliation. We believe in Jesus, but we're not going to church anymore. Now, you know what? I am so curious about them because we have family members who are. Why is church so uncompelling that they don't want to do life with us? Was it Einstein who said idiocy is doing the same thing the same way and expect different results? Well, I don't want to do things the same way. I want to do different things. Tonight we eat together. We eat every time we meet. Because when I look at Jesus, everything he did was at a meal, before a meal, or just after a meal. When I look at the early church, everything they did was around food. What we do, everything we do is around a pulpit. That's only about four, five hundred years old. For 250 years, archaeologists tell us there was no church building, just homes. For two and a half centuries, we went from a tiny, motley crew of Nazarene cult followers, as they were perceived to be, to being the primary religion in the known world, and they never had a church building. 
They've had a church building. You know what was interesting? There were two major famines in, uh, now my memory is not great because I'm getting old, it's my excuse. But around about uh, AD 126 and then about 100 years after, two plagues, the Black Plague swept throughout Europe and killed literally millions of people. You know what was interesting? Part of the reason why the then known civilized world became Christian was doctors fled the urban areas because the plague killed everyone. Family members would push plague-ridden uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews, kids into the street to let them die there, locked their door, and kept their houses sealed so that the plague wouldn't come in here. Everyone dumped plague-filled people on the streets where bodies piled high and the stench was incomparable. Read Rodney Stark's The Rise of Christianity. He describes it eloquently, except for the Christians. The Christians, because they knew where eternity was for them, opened their homes for the dying, would go onto the streets and give water and food to the dying, knowing that their very acts of compassion and empathy would ultimately lead to their death. They viewed it a delight. They viewed it as a joy. The orphans were taken into their homes. It's a phenomenal story, ladies and gentlemen. For those who are far off, dare I say, all of us, including Meryl and I, have a long way to go. Can I tell you an embarrassing story? Our average age of our community is about 22. I don't know why. They, the young found us. I don't know if the old don't want to hang with us. I'm not sure. I don't know. I hear that one of our students is living in his car. Now, there aren't many homes in our church because we're so young. Meryl and I have a beautiful home. And to be brutally honest with you, I still pause to think, should I have David come and stay with us? I still pause to think. It's going to inconvenience me. I can't walk around in my jocks. I can't, you know, I, I can't, what am I going to do when I watch TV? Is it going to be like, ah, is that the TV show he wants to? We had a dinner party the other night and he comes and sits at the table. I want to say, I didn't invite you. I mean, this is, you know, I know Meryl did. She's so jolly kind. You know what I'm saying? Do you hear what I'm saying? Our brutal selfishness just so grabs our soul. We've lost the joy of those who are far off. We've lost the joy of loving them because of this great mysterious gospel that so impacted our hearts. And I said, Jesus, I can't believe it. 59, I'm such a selfish old man. Kind of a young old man. I want to run one more half marathon. Such a grumpy young old man. Are you with me? But because this, this offends us, doesn't it? What was so compelling about all of this was that um, the love of Christ so gripped their hearts that they lived an upside-down kingdom. They lived differently. Can I have five more minutes, Tom? You sure? You, you know what's interesting here? And there's so much to, to say, and I'm sorry I'm rushing here. But, but you know what is interesting? It says that the crooked generation, you know what's crooked about our generation? I, I coached rugby when I was still teaching, and uh, I got to practice one afternoon, and one of the kids was sick. So I said, I'll play his position in the scrum. I know many of you don't know what rugby is or what it looks like. So I'm playing with these boys. I'm in the scrum with them. i just come out the army, so I was fit and strong. And uh, we went into a loose ruck because rugby's continuous, you know. And uh, as we get in, one of the boys just hits me. It just takes me out. I said, okay. Bastard, I'm going to get you, you know. Um, the next day, my neck is crook. I'm like this. 
Because I get to school and they say, oh, what happened? I told them, all the teachers laugh, they think it's funny. So go to a chiropractor. Now, I'm a Christian, and chiropractic was Eastern and bad, you know. This is the 80s. And uh, so I'm thinking, oh, God, forgive me all my sins. I say all my prayers. I do everything I need to. And then I go and see this great, wonderful old man who's not weird at all, and he adjusts my neck. See, The crooked generation is where the vertebra of a generation goes out. It's no longer in line with what it should be. And what's put our vertebra out? Rampant individualism. Me, I, mine. It's all that matters. Insatiable materialism, holding retail therapy. I buy stuff I don't need with money I don't have. To put on a pretense of a life I can't live. And the pursuance of pleasure. The only thing that matters is my boat on the water. That's a crooked generation. Does God love us being individual? Of course he does. Fearfully and wonderfully made, David said. Does God love us um, enjoying the blessings that he gives us? Oh, heck yeah. I've got cool boots, wolverines, almost 400 bucks each. But my son works at a store I got 50% off. <laughs> See, God loves us having cool things. But it's not what controls us, what, what, what creates the idolatry of it all. Yeah, let, me, let me land with this. I think the verse of Scripture that is so compelling there is, um, and, and all of them are, but I want to just pull out one more picture, make a couple of comments, and we're done. You okay? You with me? Yeah. Doesn't this little verse completely irritate the heck out of you? It says this, um, And all who were believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Now, I ask myself this question. Why did a group of Hebrew listeners go to such an extreme? What happened in that moment that they would go and take, Barnabas would go and take some land, sell the land, and give the money to be distributed to the, to the poor and the needy? I want to land here because I think God can help some of you today. Here's my thesis. Number one, the understanding, the epignosos, it's the Greek word which means Revelation is no, sorry, uh, knowledge is no sauce. Epignosis is reveal, revelation. It's like having a Christmas, a gift under the Christmas tree. That's knowledge. I have a gift under the tree. I'm excited because it looks big. All of us, we still think big equals good, isn't it? Isn't that the one we're like, yes, I got the big gift. Um, and, and, but, but that's knowledge. Epignosis is when I take the wrapping off and I see what the gift is. It gets unveiled or revealed. Now, one of the areas I would love for all of us to see is the fact that Abraham told his son on the mount when he went to kill his son, he said, Yahweh, Yireh, Jehovah Jireh, God is our provision boy. That is the revelation that every Hebrew mind knew. God will provide boy. It isn't something he does. It's who he is. Let me take you a little step closer. 42 years of walking with Jesus, I missed one tithe. At 10% of my gross, once as a 19-year-old. That's not legalism. It's not the law. It's the knowledge that you can never outgive God. Never, ever outgive God. It's Christianity 101. I want to give you this as a gift. Not so I go and sell your house. I'm not, I, the, the deeper revelation is God is Yahweh Yireh. He is provision personified. I love being generous with my kids. But 
understanding that God is their provision. When um, the church in Brea went through some hard times, it was a period of time I did not get paid, but no one knew but the accountant, Merrill, and I. All the other staff got paid. I wasn't getting paid. It was fine. During that time, my daughter, who studied at Biola, went to Oxford and did a year at Oxford. So I take her there, check her into the American dorm, and they ask for a meeting with all the parents. So I go and they say, you know, welcome everyone, blah, blah, blah. One miscommunication. The tuition's been covered, the accommodation's been covered, but the food's not covered. Now, Dana does not know I'm not earning a salary. I mean, not a dime. So I sit there. She says, Dad, is this okay? I said, of course it is, my babe. Yahweh, Yireh, God is my provision. God sees. Can I, can I be honest with you? Even in those times, I tithe what I should be earning. Just took the money out of the savings. Because I believe. Yahweh So I take it to UBSC or whatever the place, bankers, open an account, pull out my few dollars, open an account for her. I said, baby, Yahweh Leave the Sunday, driving out back to Heathrow, with my cell phone rings. Hey, Chris, it's Ryan here. Ryan is a church plant I work with in London. He says, you're in town. I said, man, I'm so sorry. You know, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't contact you, but I've, I've got my daughter here, and I'm dropping her off at Oxford, which I've done. I'm on my way to Heathrow. And he said, well, actually, that's why we've called as a church. Now, it's a little church plant in London, independent. Again, no one knows. He says to me, we as a team, leadership team, want to give your daughter 300 pounds a month. Are you okay with that? Now, I start bawling, like sobbing, bawling, you see. And he's like, are you there, Chris? Are you okay? Are you there? Are you fine? Are you okay? And I, I mean, I'm so embarrassed, snorting trana, as we Afrikaners say, just the whole nine yards. Eventually, I get out. I said, Ryan, you won't believe it. I tell him the story. I'm still driving to Heathrow. Dana doesn't have a phone. I couldn't buy her a British phone. So, um, but I called the dorm, and she's standing by the phone talking to other girls. I said, babe, it's dad here. Have you got a moment? I've got a story to tell you. I tell her the story. Now both of us are weeping. You see, Yahweh If you feel you can manage your finances without the supernatural interruption and involvement and the mystery and the wonder of it all, God says, do it. Do it. It's fine. He doesn't need the money. It's we who need the privilege of understanding when eternity breaks into our world. When eternity comes and interrupts the natural flow of economics, when it doesn't all make sense. When Dana graduated, not a dollar debt, no student loan. She said, Ed, really? I said, yep. She said, how do we do it? I said, I don't know. But don't ask them. It may be a mistake. <laughs> See, I'm just a pastor on a single salary. See, but God is whom? Yahweh. That's what they understood. They said, you want this? You want my fridge? Take it. You want my car? Take it. It's the most wonderful privilege. And what an affront to a broken world to see Christians who are loaded with joy because Christ is captivating, who are awed by the wonder of doing life together because church is compelling, and then live this real world of mystery 
and miracles and majesty because of who he is. And the stories we tell at Starbucks or at the craft coffee or craft beer place is not my husband sucks, life is so tough, I'm always exhausted, everything just woe is me. No, the stories we tell, I can't believe what happened to us this week. I got a check back from the tax man, I never thought. Can't believe what happened. I was asking God for a, I mean, Meryl's got a jacket. I love Meryl's stories. She's just got all these little miracles. It's like she's God's apple of her eye. She walks into a jolly Goodwill in the middle of somewhere, I don't even know where, Kingsburg, near Visalia or something, and she walks out with a $3 leather jacket. I'm like, Meryl, you drive me nuts. But you know what? See, God loves looking after his little girl. I think the smile on his face as he dropped that on the hanger and watched Meryl come in and say, there it is. Go and get your $3 leather jacket that's worth 250 bucks. Go, there we go. See? But you'll pay 250 bucks if you manage your life. I say, God, it's yours. Do the what you want. And watch and see the great stories that you will tell of how amazing your husband is, how amazing your kids are, because of the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Does that make sense? I'm sorry I've preached so long. <laughs> I'm sorry. But th- th- this is, don't you agree? This is a great story. Don't you want to be part of a story like this? So God parachutes a couple into Temecula, and he says, I want to tell a story just like that in Temecula. I'm going to parachute them in or coming home with a couple of other friends and watch and see the narrative of God's goodness, God's kindness, God's grace, God's mercy into all of you. And you are privileged to be part of a story like this. Can we pray together? Father, I thank you. Sorry I took so long. Father, I thank you for these incredible men and women. I thank you for eager hearts. I thank you for honest doubts. I thank you for vulnerable moments because all of those push us closer to you. I thank you for you. You're mysterious. You're remarkable. You're majestic. You're powerful. You're kind. You're good. You're merciful. You love. My, 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 my. What a privileged life we live. May the seeds of this morning's time together, whether it be a song we sang, a story told, the scriptures opened. May it infuse us with fresh faith for the adventure which lies ahead. Always aware that you are a good, good father. In Jesus' name.